You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. Good morning, Horse World. This is Ashley Winch in Kansas City, Missouri, and you're not listening to Horses in the Morning today, as we were scheduled to be dark, but since we're entering the season of giving, we wanted to share with you our latest podcast, the Show Jumping Podcast by Reline GI and our friends at Haggard Pharmacy, hosted by Christy McCormick and me. Glenn and Jamie will be back tomorrow. In the meantime, enjoy the show. Be sure to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and join our Facebook group to see the video of today's pacing exercise on Overheard on the Show Jumping Podcast. You're listening to the Show Jumping Podcast, a fun and informative show for riders, owners, trainers, grooms, and fans of all levels. I'm Ashley Winch in Kansas City, Missouri. And I'm Christy McCormick in Saratoga Springs, New York. And you're listening to the Show Jumping Podcast, where we cover everything from at-home exercises to the economics of running a horse business and chat with guests about anything and everything in the world of show jumping. We're so excited to be bringing you this podcast twice a month on the 10th and 25th. Coming up on today's show, pacing exercises to try at home, defining success both inside and outside of the ring, and a look back at horse history. Christy, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I am a professional hunter-jumper rider out of Saratoga Springs, and I've been showing on the A circuit for most of my life. I started in my backyard with my mom as my first trainer. We had our own pony barn, and the four of us got lessons from my mother right after school about how to post and how to canter. And that went all the way to working up as a professional, working for several different fantastic professionals over the years. And for the last 15 years, I've had a training business where I have taught both juniors and amateurs. And I've also spent lots of time in the ring riding on young hunters and jumpers. Recently, I've changed gears to start to teach clinics and I'm also freelance writing, um, and I can't talk enough about teaching. I am very passionate about it, and I love giving back to younger riders, any type of rider that wants to learn how to walk track canter or go to the ring and be successful. On this show, we'll talk about different exercises I've used to help horses and riders improve their technique, as well as get into some compelling conversation topics that don't always get discussed at the horse show. Christy, it's so funny that uh, we ended up on this show together because believe it or not, Christy and McCormick, Christy McCormick and myself have a very similar uh, beginning to our horse history. Uh, I too actually started riding with my mom as my main trainer in, in uh, outside of Washington, D.C. in Virginia. And that lasted, oh, all of six months until I was walk trot cantering my pony around the ring and jumping with the big kids whenever my mom would turn her back because that's just how I am and who I am. And, uh, my, I, I just, I, you know, as a young woman, I don't think any of us really love listening to our moms. 
And so once uh, my feet would go reach past the the flaps of the saddle, she went ahead and set me up with some real life trainers. And uh, I got to train in the hunter jumper arena with um, Janet McCune, uh, Miss Judy Fannin, Bobby McCune. I I did a lot of jumping. My back hurts thinking about how much I used to jump, Christy. I mean, I used to just get out there and tear it up. And now I am 35 years old and I am too afraid of hitting the ground. So I will not be jumping higher than a meter ever again. Uh, You heard it here first because I'm just (laughs) afraid of splatting. But I'm so excited, Christy, to have this show with you and reignite my passion for the jumper world, the hunter jumper world. I'm not much of a hunter girl. I like to go fast and rock out, not go slow and look pretty. But I'm just so excited to learn everything. I've been out of the hunter jumper world for a minute and I'm just stoked to be all along the ride with you, Christy. So thank you so much for agreeing to be my co-host here. And we'd like to say thank you so much for our title sponsor, Haggard Pharmacy. And joining us today is Mark White here to talk about everything gastrointestinal. Excuse me, Mark, tell us about your wonderful product and why all of our listeners need it. Ashley, thank you so much. So excited to be here. Um, Reline GI was originally created by our internal medicine specialist, Dr. Nathan Slovis. Um, In looking at horses which did not respond to traditional therapies, mainly omeprazole, he heard about high-weight hyaluronic acid and beta-glucans, and his basically tried it on horses that did not respond. And his initial findings were pretty amazing. Um, Nine out of the 10 horses tried had significant improvements um, or completely healed in 30 days. And that is what launched the uh, Reline formulation and the Resolvet brand of veterinary products. Um, So, Essentially, it is a high-weight hyaluronic acid and an immunoboosting beta-glucan. Upon ingestion, it coats the stomach like the old Pepto-Bismol commercials. Uh, It soothes and relieves and protects. So the hyaluronic acid is very mucoadhesive. It sticks to the stomach lining, acting as a protectant. And the beta-glucan is basically triggers the immune system to come into action and self-repair. Um, I am so thankful for your company joining us here on this podcast as well. I was wondering how this can help a horse that I ride uh, who has some symptoms of stomach pain. She doesn't always want to go forward. She kicks out at my leg. Sometimes she even bites at her side. Can you tell me if this would be a product that I could try on her and if it might help? Definitely, Christy. So what you're describing is those are pretty common symptoms of horses with fairly severe gastric ulcers. The only way to truly know is to do a stomach scope on your horse, um, which we do recommend doing. But yes, um, I would definitely try this product for that uh, those symptoms. And I think you'll see some pretty good results. We constantly hear from people I mean, on a weekly basis, um, describing the same thing and 
how Reline has really helped their horse. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Mark. And where can folks find this amazing product to help them with their horses with their ulcers? Well, our product is not available on Amazon, eBay, or in traditional sources. We are a veterinary owned manufacturer. So you can get it, ask your veterinarian if they carry it, or you can order it directly from haggardpharmacy.com or go to the website resolvevet.com. Thanks again to Haggard Pharmacy for being our title sponsor here on the Show Jumping Podcast from the offset. We're so excited to see what heights we can reach together. Next, we're joined by Kimmy McCormick, Christy's sister and first student. All right. Hi, everyone. Again, we are now being joined by my sister, Kimmy McCormick, who not only is my sister, but was my very first riding student. Um, A little background on us was I began my professional riding career and training career uh, when I turned 18 after my junior years. Uh, Kimmy is six years younger than me and she was 12 and up until then had just tagged along at horse shows and Hopefully she stayed on a pony when, you know, nobody was looking um, and turned into a very successful junior rider. So I thought a good topic for today that we could discuss is the definition of success and what that means to us now versus what that meant to us at the time of a very important uh, junior career or what seemed to be important at the time, uh, not to take away from anything you've won, Kimmy, she has won the medal finals, uh, which is now the Dover medal, USEF medal finals. She has won the ASPCA McClay finals. She has several junior jumper championships under her belt. Um, and now does something entirely different, which every time somebody asks me what she does, I give them a different answer. She is an applied scientist. I have called her a rocket scientist. I've called her a geologist and made up several different scientific names that I thought sounded good in between. So welcome, Kimmy. Thanks for joining us. I'm so happy to be here. Um, My first question for you is, can you describe your definitions of success uh, in different stages of your riding career and talk about how they've changed? Now, wait one second. I know we got two sisters on here. And Christy, you're not going to get off that easy. I vote we have a -a tete-a-tete. And you both tell us how you've defined success through the years. Ah, okay. We can do that. All right. I'm going to let you go first. Okay. Um, So, as you mentioned, I'm a scientist. So, I love little more than a good definition um, before we start. So, I actually looked up success. Um, and according to Merriam Webster, they have several. But the one I liked uh, as success is the accomplishment of goals, aims, or objectives. So, I think for me, looking back, it's almost impossible to talk about success without really talking about what are your goals and objectives at different stages and how do those change? Who gets to define them, right? That's kind of, uh, in hindsight, such a big question for me is who actually gets to set that definition sort of by setting what those expectations and objectives are uh, through time. So 
I think as a junior, it's such an interesting time um, to define that because it changes so rapidly. So um, just as a kind of grounding anecdote here is um, I, you know, looking at the medal finals, you've mentioned I won at the end of my junior career, um, but looking just three years before that, um, my first time going um, when neither myself at 13 or my horse, who I eventually won on Tommy, had any business being there. And the definition of success then, our goal was just to jump around without me hitting the dirt, um, right? And that's precisely what we did. Um, or even the very next year, uh, Christy, I'll let you tell this story because I think your perspective is a little better. When, oh, when you when you did hit the dirt, is that the when time you're talking about? Yeah, okay. no, that's the time I'm talking about. Why do, <laughs> would you like to elaborate? Uh, sure. So as you mentioned that first time, we were all so nervous for you to just hang on, grab Maine, hopefully, you know, just get around the course without any major disaster, which you did. And I think um, my memory of it is one of the jumps that Tommy as a green horse looked down into and peeked in and over jumped, sent you maybe a foot out of the tack, uh, but you landed in the tack luckily and finished up and everyone had a great time. And I'm going to venture to say that might've been the most fun we had at the medal finals of all yeah, the years yeah. we went. <laughs> okay. You'll say yes. Um, the next, then we realized that you could ride a little bit and uh, you got pretty good. So we're going as a 15 year old, which is still young in terms of the equitation junior career. We got three years to go and you nailed the first round. Uh, and if my memory serves, you nailed the second round pretty well. And so you're up there in the top 10. And for those who are unfamiliar with the format, the way that uh, end of day works in the medal finals is usually they have anywhere between the top four and the top eight tests. So come back for a third round where you're asked to do some shorter but more technical exercises in the ring. Uh, and so if you're on that standby and you know that you could be asked to go into the test, you are in the schooling area, which is a tiny, small area to warm up over that's right next to the ring at Harrisburg. And a trot jump is usually included. And Kimmy's nemesis for her entire career was a trot jump. Indeed, She never taught Tim Tommy to do it correctly. I don't think I ever taught you how to do it correctly. And so yeah. it was a struggle. And as we are frantically trying to prepare for the possibility of you going in the ring for that last test and possibly move up from a top 10 position to a, who knows, top three position, maybe even win. I get down the stairs at the ramp and you are trotting a jump with your other trainer, Missy Clark and John Brennan sitting there and you are falling over the top of Tommy's head onto the ground, landing on your ass on your back. Not sure which part right before they say, and we'll take the top five into the ring to test. And you were on the sixth place position. So we all had a nice sigh of relief that you didn't have to go into the ring and perform that exercise to the best of your abilities. The best test Which I ever low. did. Yeah, I believe there were two trot jumps in that test that year as well. Um, uh, so, lucky no, you. we were all we were all thrilled to not uh, not put me in the ring at that particular moment. We were we um, were happy with that sixth place green ribbon. <laughs> so yeah, and and then you know obviously had had that been the case, had you had that been the circumstance two years later, right? That would not have been a successful day, right? That we would have been, have been in tears. Exactly. Sure. And so that, that goalpost moves and 
and how, and there's nothing inherently wrong with raising expectations, with moving that goalpost to achieve um, kind of higher and higher objective goals of, oh, I want to get a ribbon and now I want to win and now I want to do this, you know, higher division. Um, but it is worth asking the question of, you know, again, who gets to set those, what, what's a healthy balance between raising those expectations, um, but not raising them to the point where you really don't leave a lot of room for success um, between your goals and really the ceiling of, of what you're capable of, what a horse is capable of, what's even possible, right, within, you know, if your goal is to win, everything but that is a failure, and that's, um, that's maybe not the healthiest definition of of success that we have, um, which kind of leads me into moving on away from a junior career. Um, there's lots of different formats and lots that can sort of breed lots of uh, variations on on what success is. For instance, I rode in college. It was a great experience for me. And it's a completely different game. You move from a individual sport to a team sport, um, which I think was a fantastic experience coming off of a junior career and really, really changing and broadening, you know, who you're riding for, not only yourself, sure, absolutely, um, but your team and your school to actually be representing something larger than yourself as a team sport and as a NCAA athlete was just such a fantastic transition and really does helped me kind of open up what you know what my goals and what those that that definition was as i moved you know rode in college and then just moving on you know through my phd getting to ride coming back as an amateur and kind of being able to reset and redefine um what success was success is progress success is learning success is teaching you know a young horse something and those are all incredibly valid definitions of success outside of any score or ribbon and arguably probably healthier definitions of success than maybe we we had for ourselves and had kind of put on us as juniors. Um, and I think most juniors who've had a large deal of success in their career will kind of feel that same way. It's really hard to not internalize all of those external goals that people have, you know, for themselves or for you. I can relate to everything you said um, and to answer Ashley's question, both as a rider or as a junior rider um, and as a trainer of junior riders, some a couple years later, uh, first Kimmy, I really had a very narrow definition of success where be, perhaps because we were naturally it came easy to us riding in you know, in terms of just getting on the horse and feeling our pace and our distances and all the basics we work on. That part was straight away something that we could attain quickly, but that was only the basis of what the results came to. And because we were in the very small bubble of what is winning versus like you said, Kimmy, everything else is failure, especially when you start winning you realize that your your scope there is so narrow that you're you're losing way more than you're winning in this sport and that therefore that that window of failure and the feeling of failure can really overtake most of your time showing and competing and i think especially when you're competing against yourself 
And you're, as a trainer, expecting their, your students to really compete against themselves and keep progressing. It's not a straight uphill path. There's so many ups and downs, and there are so many lessons to learn because of the downsides. I miss that as a young professional, and I miss that with Kimmy. And Kimmy really taught me how to adjust as I went. And I remember how stressful the end of your career was because there are four finals you won two of them that's an amazing accomplishment in itself most people never even get to experience the level of what a ribbon feels like you know there are four finals every year there's you can win all four of them a couple people have you can win two of them some people have why is two not enough? You know, we were so expecting, of course you'll win the other two. That's ridiculous. There is no, of course. It's a different day. Every day is a new day. Every course is a new course. And it took me teaching you. And then another good 15 years later to understand both as a trainer and as a rider, you better widen your definition of success in order to notice any progress otherwise you only notice the downward hill and you only stay in that it's not good enough so that was the biggest lesson i had in being able to teach you because i think the stakes were the highest they could have been being in her own family and knowing that i won the finals so therefore you'll win the finals so therefore you'll win all the finals and finals are only one little segment of what we competed in but it's something that is most visible i think to um to a lot of our community so I, I appreciate the fact that we were able to be that successful, but I really appreciate the fact that we then had to learn new versions of what that meant when we didn't keep up that trend because it wasn't possible. You know, we, we got to work with what's possible. Yeah. And I, I think that gets to such the kind of the core of it is in order to widen for me, once I um, stopped being a junior, um, I, you know, rode, um, started riding young horses at Lamore, young school horses, um, kind of this wider variety of animals. And again, that redefinition and making it really individual, not only just to you, but to each horse and finding those like small relative goals instead of I want to get a score or win a ribbon it's I want to miss one fewer lead change on this horse today and having those really again kind of that that progress over these objective goals in whatever progress means for both you where you are um and the horse you're on right that's such a big part it's not just it's a combination of rider and horse um at, at every single level and I think being comfortable with readjusting that benchmark and to say, oh, we had a, you know, we had a bad week or this horse had, you know, maybe got nervous about something and and being willing to to step back and say, okay, let's let's redefine what what success is for this horse, what our goals are right now and and allow them to be successful at maybe a lower level. There's such a there's such a pushback in everywhere. This is not just horses, but we see, you know, progress as we're only allowed to raise the bar and and allowing ourselves to kind of when when that's the healthy thing to do lower the bar and and allow for you know it to be a little easier when when that's the best thing for especially like a young horse or a young kid 
I totally agree. And I think that I've had a lot as a trainer to work with in terms of individual, like you said, individualizing those versions of success and understanding that sometimes the most successful place we can be in is outside of the ring and what we learn not by competing, but by the mistakes we make that we can go back and practice and the mistakes we make that can relate to the rest of our life too. You know, this is not, this is a fun, cool activity that we do that we place the most, you know, value on per ride, I would say. And another question I would ask you now is what makes a successful ride to you today, you know, and, and how you have a different, we're not even competing at this point. We're working with, how we like how we like to ride yeah no i i love that question because that it was a long road for me to redefine what that looked like um so i actually took uh about five years off of riding completely um during grad school and i think and it wasn't really an it was so much an intentional thing more that i was poor and i had no time um <laughs> but we as as grad students tend to be um but in doing that, I think coming back, being able to come back to the sport and as an amateur, being able to come and ride, you know, your horses and the adult hunters and, and ride at a barn um, here locally that allows me to come out and ride kind of just, you know, whoever needs to be exercised that day um, is, is saying, okay, for me at this point, I was so, so lucky to have the experience and knowledge I gained from being taught by, you know, world-class riders and trainers, getting to sit on just incredible animals at such a young age, um, and now getting to take even just a tiny sliver of that experience and pass it on in any way to a young horse, to a, you know, 12-year-old kid at the barn who's, you know, struggling with something and, and getting to be involved and, again, take that take that experience that I was so lucky to have and, you know, kind of be any sort of positive influence on the ground, on a horse, um, in any way that for me is so much fun. And so at that point, the, the, you know, today, that is my, that is my definition of success now is just getting to pass on something, um, something fun, something meaningful, something insightful, um, to, to the next generation of kids and horses, um, when I get involved. I love that. And I am going to use your answer as my answer. My, my life now is about passing on, uh, this experience and all of the ups and downs that I've gone through, uh, many of which have been with you. And I do hope to pass that on to move forward so that the next generation of riders or whoever I get to be in touch with can understand that success is not just up, it's up and down. And the process through that is learning. And so if we can find the small successes in the losses, that's, that's a win right there. Very well said. And, you know, I think my favorite part of this interview, listening to you both share stories and, and hearing about how far you both have come, especially through your junior careers. I have to tell you, I think it is so inspiring that both of you have defined success to mean that you're learning and bettering yourself, whether that is, you know, through through the ride that day, through next month's training program, through taking on lessons, through catch riding. I just I'm I'm very inspired. So thank you both, Kimmy and Christy. And 
And now we're going to hop in the time machine and go all the way back to 1914 for a very special National Horse Show. And as a military spouse, I'm especially excited to share this little piece of horse show history. The National Horse Show began in 1883, and in 1914, a horse show was held in New York City by the Red Cross to benefit the troops of World War I. This event was a huge success, raising over a million dollars for the organization. The show featured a variety of events, including a recreation of Rosa Bonheur's painting, the Horse Fair, and a cavalry endurance race. The organizers of this show faced a number of challenges, including bad weather and the need to tone down the festive atmosphere due to the war. However, they were able to overcome these challenges and put on a successful event. The Red Cross Art Horse Show was a major event in New York City in 1914 and was a huge success both financially and in terms of public interest. Isn't that cool that the National Horse Show, something that we all know of as competitors, as this prestigious event, had such an impact on the war effort at that time? Uh, And I did, as a side note, look up that $1 million in 1914 would be the same as $3 million today. Unheard of for charity, Um, probably especially from horse shows. So horse shows take note. Let's see what we can raise. In every episode, we will be highlighting a tangible training tip for you to try at home with your horse. For our first episode, we wanted to focus on an exercise that is meant to understand and regulate pace, which as we all know, is the basis for any riding that we do. This exercise can be done in real time. So I will explain the setup and then following, I'll explain what to do while on the horse, which if you'd like to listen as you ride, we can do this together. For your ring setup, we are going to place two poles that are opposite each other as if they were on a clock at three o'clock and nine o'clock. You're also going to place one standard at 12 o'clock and one standard at six o'clock. If your ring is oval shaped, you can use your entire ring. If you have a large area that you'd like to condense, you can use a circle that gives you about 10 to 12 strides between each obstacle. So between the pull on the ground to the next standard, if you were cantering in a circle, you'd have 12 strides to have completed between those two. And then the same follows to the next pull, the next standard, and then the pull again. So go ahead and set that up and then we'll come back and you can follow along with what to do while riding. While you're on your horse, your first job is to establish what kind of pace you have and how that's different between each gate. So we're gonna use miles per hour, but they are not exact. They don't mean one, two, three exact miles per hour. They're just a frame of reference to remember as you're moving along on your horse. So. To start at the walk, we're going to imagine that that's one mile per hour and just organize your horse enough that you have a moving forward walk that has some intention and some impulsion. That's going to be called one mile per hour. Move forward through each gate 
and give each gate a number that you can clearly define. So as you move forward from the walk into the collected sitting trot, that would be two to three miles per hour. Again, the, the number and the mile per hour don't matter. What matters is you are defining what pace you're on. Working trot generally is up to four to five miles per hour. Working trot then needs to be established and maintained so that you know that your horse is on the same pace each time you go around the ring. Part of learning how to regulate pace is learning how to understand what pace you're on and how to maintain it. As you move forward into the extended trot, you're going to be at approximately six miles per hour. Work on that extended trot and again, holding it. Usually when we move forward, we like to accelerate and then take our leg off. So the horse may go forward into the extended trot, but in order to maintain it, you've got to keep your leg on and make sure that they're following your aids and staying at that pace. Once you've established the different paces at the trot and you understand which number correlates to them, again, as your own horse has its pace to dictate going forward, you can start to move into the canter. The collected canter, I like to call seven miles an hour. That's gen generally a canter where you're organized. It's a shortened stride. It is not the pace you would use to go to a hunter line or a jumper line on course. It is the pace you would use to land and collect and slow down before you go into the next turn. That's approximately seven miles per hour. Once you pick up your canter, try to get to where your horse is underneath you, collected in hand, and at a pace where you can extend from. Extending from collected canter moves into working canter. This is your most important canter, and you're able to establish it and hold it all the way around the course. We'll talk about how to make adjustments from eight miles an hour that's again working canter eight miles an hour as a frame of reference this is your go-to canter you'd really love to make sure that you start and finish your course at this pace extended canter generally nine miles an hour where your horse is really moving forward from your leg you're still in control this would be a canter that you use when you see a distance to move up to if you're coming out of the corner at eight miles an hour and you see a forward distance add your leg move your horse forward and get to nine miles an hour 10 miles an hour is out of the tack at a hand gallop. This is, again, still in control, but the fastest that you'd like to go. If you're working on your jump off speed, this is 10 miles an hour where you're moving your horse as forward as it can go while keeping control of your stride. For this exercise, practice on the flat not worrying about any of the setup that you've done in the ring with the poles or the standards, but just establishing where each pace lies and how to recognize what you're on. The numbers are only for recognition. Don't worry again if they are exact at all. Worry that each time that you're at eight miles an hour, it is a true working canter. Once you've tracked your own pace, start to incorporate the two poles on the ground. If you are cantering on the left lead, going counterclockwise, you'll be cantering over the pole at three miles an hour at, I'm sorry, at three o'clock. 
go around the standard that you have at 12 o'clock and canter over the pole that's at nine o'clock around the next standard at six o'clock and canter over the pole that's at three o'clock. So you're essentially making a lap around the ring and cantering each pole as you are coming out of each corner. Make these poles work at eight miles an hour to start. Try to understand where your canter is as you're approaching the pole. You can make adjustments to slow down to fit the distance in or speed up to make the distance closer to the pole if it's moving forward, but really try to work on establishing and maintaining eight miles an hour. Eight miles an hour, again, working canter. Once you've figured out how that working canter can be maintained, then start to add in your transitions. So if we were cantering a course and approaching a jump at eight miles an hour, every time you land from a line or a jump, you want to organize your horse's balance. That's getting to seven miles an hour. So you're really going from working canter to collected canter after the pole. The idea in this exercise is to use the poles and the standards for when to ask for those transitions. Once you've cantered over the first pole, again at three o'clock, land and use any space you have from the pole to the standard to get to seven miles an hour or collected canter. That's your landing time. That's your recovery time. And that is usually the time that most riders waste time when they're trying to get back in the saddle, when they cut the corner, when their horse knows that they're turning and they turn too early. It's really important to use as much space as possible. So you have the most time to recover and get back to seven miles an hour. Most horses land from a jump and tend to speed up. Most horses land and try to cut in early. So by the time you get to that standard at 12 o'clock, you're too fast and you're on a track that has really put you closer to the end of the ring than you want to be. So as much time as you can take between the pole and the standard is important. The next step is after you cross the the standard or after you pass it, put your leg immediately back on and get back to eight miles an hour. There's your time to move up. Note that this is before you're out of the turn. If it's at a true 12 o'clock point in your ring, you still should have at least three or four strides to move across the short end of the ring or the short end of the turn to establish that eight miles an hour. Because by the time you are straight and trying to approach the next pole, which is your next obstacle, the nine o'clock pole, then you want to be at that eight miles an hour. You have the most options when you are in that working canter. You can collect and get to seven miles an hour to fit the distance in, or you can move up and move up to nine miles an hour or extended canter for a forward distance. So again, you're landing from the pole over at three o'clock, collecting to seven miles an hour or collected canner until the top end of the ring where you pass that standard. Then you're switching gears and moving back up to eight miles an hour so you can approach the pole with the most options for your distance. Pace is the very first thing that dictates distance. And if you don't have any pace or you don't have the correct pace, you are really going to be struggling to find any distance. Same pattern at this end of the ring. When you land from that pole, now you're working down to the six o'clock standard. Use all of the space you have to collect into seven miles an hour or collected canter. 
That means, again, going straight after the pole, slowing down inside leg keeps your horse from cutting in. Both reins keep your horse straight as long as you can through that turn. Some horses can collect very easily and quickly, but others might take that entire time. Use as much space as you have. The earlier you get this part of the exercise done, the easier the second part of the exercise will be. So this is just that pattern. Crossing the standard means moving up to eight miles an hour to the pole. Landing from the pole means slowing down to seven miles an hour. That's your basic exercise. Once you've established it to the left, land, walk, readdress your speed once you've changed direction, and then approach each of those poles. As you complete this exercise successfully, you can add in different speeds to the pole. Practice going from seven miles an hour to nine miles an hour as if you were actively trying to move up to the next jump. Perhaps the line in the ring is forward. Perhaps you're coming to a triple bar. Perhaps you're trying to be efficient and in a jump off where you can leave out the number of strides from the turn. You can use nine miles an hour to address that pace and approach the pole with the intention of a moving up forward distance. When you have a pace that you know that you're on, that can tell you what kind of distance you'll get to. A second way to do this is to practice once you've recovered from seven miles an hour to keep that collected canter and get to the next jump or the next pole in a waiting slow distance. Maybe the next line is very collected. Maybe you have a skinny jump coming up. Maybe you have a combination that requires extra balance from your horse. You don't want to approach that with too much pace. So you'd like to come in a bit slower and wait for that distance coming out of the turn. Again, this is referencing your pace in order to dictate your distance. Moving through all of these circles at different speeds primarily means being aware of what canter you're on and using that to find the pole as you're coming out of the corner. Once you've completed this on a circle, you can stop, take another pole out and line it up with either of the sides of the ring. So you're now going to have a line of poles, which could be anywhere from five strides apart to 12 strides apart. The number of strides doesn't matter, but what does matter is the pace you come in on should be the same pace that you leave on. Once you've established whatever pace it is that you need into the line of poles, try to maintain that as you come out of the pole and count the number of strides. So if you're on working canter and you have cantered over the first pole, just stay on working canter and see how many strides that takes you to get out of the line. Let's say it's seven. Once you've done that, you know that seven strides in the line is eight miles an hour. Now, as you're coming around that corner from the standard forward into nine miles an hour, you want to do six strides in that line. If seven strides in a line is your working canter, your extended canter will be six strides. Come forward 
move forward as you approach the pole and away from it. And then when you land from the second pole, slow back down and get to your collected seven miles an hour. So you can extend this exercise as according to the, the size of your ring and the amount of time you have between the two poles to make sure that you're practicing not only over a single pole, but over a line. Christy, I absolutely love this exercise on pace, especially with the visuals. What else is important for dictating distance. Pace is definitely the first element in dictating distance, but track is second. So next week we'll have an exercise where we work on defining your track and understanding what changes you can make to help stay in on your line, stay out on your line, and just improve your track in general so your distance comes up the way you'd like to. I know it's something I've always struggled struggled with chipping in or jumping ahead. So I'm personally excited for that episode. And just so you guys know, the timestamp for this lesson will be in the show notes so that you can reference it ahead of time for your next ride. Thank you so much for joining us for the first episode of the Show Jumping Podcast. Be sure to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, Ashley, for a great first episode. And thanks to all our listeners for joining. We'll see you next time.